0: Hello, my name is April Stone. I'm a black ash basket weaver from Bad River, Wisconsin, and this is Cut the Craft.
1: You know, divulging all secrets, you're like a craft crush of mine. And so, (laughs) and so. That's hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I don't think it's hilarious. I'm like super nervous to interview you, but so, like, you were in that one building um, teaching people basket weaving, and I sort of just, like, snuck around outside, like, <laughs> looking inside, like, oh, the basket weaving, that's what I really want to learn, but I couldn't go in.
2: You peeping Tom, the basket class? Yeah,
1: basically. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So, because I just love baskets, so I think they're so cool, and it, they just, mm-hmm. I don't know, they can be anything. I just
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay welcome to cut the craft everybody i'm brian and i'm amy and we are here with april stone a black ash basket weaver april welcome to the show
0: thanks for having me
2: this will be your chance to make a case for black ash basketry because Birch Bark beth was seriously casting some shade on some other basket techniques, and uh,
0: what do you mean she was casting some shade?
2: <laughs> I mean, I would just say she was making a very strong case for birch bark baskets, and not much else.
0: Oh, that's okay because <laughs> that's yeah. and she, and she's so into birch bark, and uh, and that's totally fine. I think that you're either going to like black ash or not like black ash, and personally, I think birch bark is a little overrated.
2: um, this is what i was hoping for (laughs) yeah yeah
0: and that black ash is just super elusive still it's just not too well known in my opinion okay cool
1: so april just to start us out can you tell us a little bit about what you're making and the process and for some of our listeners they they might not even know what what we're talking about when we say black ash can you uh give us an idea of what you're what you're doing
0: sure I sure can I make black ash baskets using splint or the summer growth rings from the black ash tree there's there's a little bit of a process involved in that um, I don't Purchase my material from a basket supply co- company or anything like that. I only mm-hmm. harvest my own material. And mm-hmm. so um, I go out into the swamps here in northern Wisconsin. Quite a few of the places that I get my material from is pretty much just within four or five miles of my where I live, actually, on the Bad River Indian Reservation in northern Wisconsin. And I go out into the swamps with uh, one other person, usually. And I walk around in the swamps in the summertime. And uh, what I'm looking for is a nice straight tree trunk for about, you know, good 20 feet or so, mm. free of limbs or um, branches or any visible scarification or damage to the tree. I'm looking at the at the crown. I'm looking at the the leaves. I want to make sure it has a nice, healthy crown and um, black ash. There's several species of black ash up here, and black ash is one of them. There's white, and there's also green, but they kind of grow in different spots, and there are subtle differences um, with with the three trees as well. All three trees can be um, pounded in the same way to uh, procure the splints, but um, black okay. ash is by far, I think, the easiest. Um, so it lives in swamps, right? So it, it's got a lot of moisture in there, and we get our feet wet when we're out there looking for these for these trees. When we find a tree that we feel is going to be a good quality tree. We um, make an offering of tobacco and we say a prayer because we're going to cut that tree down and and kind of it's giving up itself for us so that we Mm -hmm. can continue to make baskets. And so we always give thanks and make an offering first. And then we we cut the tree down either with an axe or a chainsaw, depending upon what our focus might be. And then we um, proceed to cut the trunk into sometimes two maybe even three depends on how tall the tree is uh, chunks of lengths and the lengths will vary um, I it kind of depends on um, the diameter of the tree which what I'm looking for is you know 12 inches in diameter maybe a little bit bigger and as far as lengths go anywhere from five to eight feet in length uh, mm-hmm. kind of depends on where the the branching that you can see that you can uh, tell where that previous branching existed, where the little knots are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So we make our best decisions while we're out there. And then we carry out as many logs as we can. And then um, we load them up in my car and we drive them up to my house and we put them on um, a log pounding station that I have in my backyard, which is essentially just a couple of cedar posts that are notched. And um, we set the log in the posts in the notched parts. And um, it's kind of set at waist height, and then uh, I take my knife and I um, debark by um, inserting my knife on one end of the log and running it to the very other end until I'm just hitting that cambium layer. And then mm-hmm. I um, take the, the bark off in one big sheet usually, um, especially if it's late spring, summertime where there's a lot of moisture in that, in that log. And um, you can get that log bark off in one sheet.
2: Wow.
0: And so then all you're doing is sitting there with a log and this really <laughs> slippery cambium layer, and then you have to pound it. So what we have is, um, if you can just visualize the backside of an axe, maybe for chopping wood, and it has rounded edges so as to not dent the fiber, the wood fiber, and you're mm-hmm. taking that and you're beating that log, literally beating that log from one end to the other. And what the beading is doing is um, kind of disintegrating that loose spring ring that is holding the summer rings together, just kind of smashing it out. It's just disintegrating it, allowing the summer ring to peel off of the log, kind of like layers of an onion. Yeah. So depending upon the age of the tree, what what you're doing is kind of reversing the age of that tree until you can't pound that log anymore. And um, the material that comes off is, you know, It can vary in width, but I like to go, you know, at least a couple inches, three inches wide maybe is kind of ideal for me. And as long as that log is, and that would be the raw material that then gets further processed for making
2: baskets. Whoa. Does that help? (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Wow. That is (laughs) awesome. Is that, (laughs) so one question that just popped in my head is what is it? I know, for example, if you look at the end grain of a log of ash, you can see pretty distinct layers like, you know, the very porous layer, which I'm assuming is what's being disintegrated through the pounding. Yes. And then mm-hmm. then you have that little heart the hardier layer which will eventually become the splints. Yes. So what is it about ash that makes it such an ideal candidate for that technique?
0: Well, I mean it is it is a ring porous tree. And um, and it does de- it kind of does delaminate with with the, the the pressure of the pounding implement, mm-hmm. mm. and so you're able to kind of get a bunch of material, a bunch of splint material off of a off of a log. How that whole idea even originated historically, like I can only try to wrap my head around because. I wasn't there in the beginning when mm-hmm. somebody realized, oh, you can actually delaminate this tree by, with, you know, using brute force. Um, mm-hmm. So that that question is always in my mind, like who was the first one who ever did this? But um, yeah. the material it, that it, that comes off of that log, the splint, is super flexible, and when it dries, it it's super strong and it lasts a really long time, like years, years, or generation after generation, depending upon how the person takes care of their baskets. But as soon as you get that material wet, it's just, you can coil it up in a, in a tiny circle. I mean, it's just, it's the qualities just make it just perfect for, for that kind of basket work here in the United States. And I kind of liken it to, or I can imagine it's kind of like bamboo in other countries where Mm. bamboo is super strong, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and ideal for making baskets. This, Black ash splint is like, for me, the ideal basket material for our area because it's a native species to this part of the United States anyway. Wow. I've had a basket be made, sat in its sh- form for a year, like in the shape that it was. It was getting used every day for a year. And then I took it and I threw it in the bathtub and I rehydrated it like for many hours. And then I took it all apart. So in its dried oh. form, it's, it's just super super strong. It has a lot of structure. You can make a lot of different shapes, um, and sizes and styles, but as soon as it gets like super wet, it, you can take the whole thing apart and reweave it. What? Reshape it. And yeah. And so it's really interesting to, to be able to see that and to do that and to know that that material can actually do that.
2: Mind blown.
0: No, I I wouldn't necessarily grab a basket that's an antique in a store and try to do this with because that's going to be like super dry material and that's just going to break on you. So um, I'd be careful with which baskets you want to redo.
1: (laughs) Wow. You know, I just think basket weaving is such an interesting – like you're creating vessels, obviously. And I don't Mm -hmm. know of any other vessel that you can create – And then take apart and then create another one using exactly the same materials with like very little like mechanical involvement. You know, it's not like with pottery, you can like make a pot and then smash it all to pieces and just be able to make another one. You have to have a lot of outside stuff. I just
0: I love stuff like that. I think it's so interesting and and what's interesting about this is that i don't think a lot of people actually know that or have tried that even some basket makers of black ash i don't i don't know like i've never really had that conversation with another black ash basket maker before where they've said oh yes i've had this basket for 2 years and i didn't like it and i didn't like its shape so i got it wet and i took it apart and i redid it like i've i, mm-hmm. I don't actually have those conversations with other black ash basket makers mm-hmm. that's just something that I stumbled upon when um, when I was married and my husband had made a basket and the shape was just really not a good shape. And mm-hmm. um, the ratios of how wide the weavers were, they just looked too wide to me. And the harness mm-hmm. system kept sliding down the basket. And so I'm just like, your basket is not a very good basket and it needs to be redone. <laughs> and so that's the basket that I threw in the bathtub and rehydrated yeah. and took it apart and put the the lashing in one pile rim system in another pile weavers in another pile uprights in another pile and proceeded to do some trimming and then reweaving so that the the leather harness system would stop sliding down the basket the and basket so itself. that he, he wouldn't have to fuss with it anymore yeah that just that experience alone is what shaped me to want to make this, the, the shape of pack baskets that I, I'm making today. So hmm. just, just an idea, just a random, hey, can I take that apart and reshape that for you? And yeah. then it turned out it was a really good thing to do. Wow. That's, that's really cool. Um, I
1: think there's something about that that reminds me of some previous conversations we have as like, well, I don't know if this is completely related, but it makes me think of when I was in high school, we were learning how to do oil painting and um I had painted this really pretty sunset or what I thought was pretty. I mean, I was like 16 years old. So. I had painted it and we were supposed sure to be it copying, nice. yeah, copying a picture that we had gotten from a magazine or something. And I painted this really beautiful picture and then looked at the, the thing I was supposed to be copying and it wasn't even remotely the same thing. And I just like, Painted over the whole painting because it wasn't what I wanted. You know, it was it was pretty in some way, but what I had intended. And so, my art teacher came over and said, "There are people who it takes years to realize (laughs) that, like, you have the ability to make something, but if it's not what you want it to be, you can stop." doing it and start something else, you know, and just like get rid of the old stuff. And I think that's really interesting and an important part of growth as a person who's making anything with their hands. I think that's really, it's interesting.
2: Yeah. Well, April, you mentioned uh, sort of some structural elements of the baskets that you make when you were talking about soaking those different components uh, separately. And that kind of Uh, Made me wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the type of weaving that you do. For example, Beth uh, in her episode mentioned uh, the double diagonal plated weave is what she uses most often. And then she also mentioned a little bit about stitched basketry. And so I was just wondering if you could tell us what yours is in relation to those. And then also if you could explain sort of what, you know, those weavers and uprights and rim. Pieces and stuff like that are
0: sure. Um, the I guess my style of weaving would be termed utilitarian uh, versus uh, fancy work. Uh, fancy work is more uh, attributed to like uh, the curly Q decoration or dye work, or when you look at a little strawberry basket and you can mm-hmm. visualize, uh, I don't know if uh, if the viewers know what a strawberry basket is, but it kind of actually looks like a strawberry or mm-hmm. the ones that look like an acorn or uh, the ears of corn that actually look like an ear, an ear of corn, but it's really the curly Q decoration from weaving with dyed ash splint that, that, that make it look like that thing. And mm-hmm. I consider that to be like more the fancy work and I have totally nothing against, Fancy, fancy work or fancy basket work, um, I think it's just uh, what a person feels drawn to. And I personally feel drawn to utilitarian work. So my baskets are usually not dyed. There is usually uh, not a lot of surface embellishment on them in the form of curlicue decoration, unless I, I wa- unless I want them to be. And um, these are baskets that are made that are going to get used. Most of them are going to have handles. You're going to take them to the beach. You're going to take them to the market. You're going to take them out in the woods with you. Uh, They're going to go harvesting with you. So they're going to get the sun, the wind. They're going to get rained on. They're going to get dirty. They might break. So then you're going to try to repair them. And then you're going to keep using them until you just can't use them anymore. And then they can go back out into the woods and pretty much be set back Right where you got got it from because I don't I don't paint anything I don't use nails I don't use screws everything is lashed together with the material itself and I don't use any kind of harmful you know varnishes or anything like that so if I keep them like that then in essence if I put them back where I got them from I'm not adding anything back to the landscape and um, and or it could go on my wood stove too if it's beyond repair because keeping my house warm is super important as well <laughs> <laughs> so my so the work is very strong. And the material that comes from the log will dictate where it needs to go into the basket. So if thick material comes off, I usually set that those thicker splints aside for um, pack baskets or baskets that are going to carry heavy loads. Thin material will go in its own separate, you know, coil, and that's going to go for stuff that's going to be lighter, like maybe it's going to be a basket for socks or wool or yarn or something like that because it's a lighter material. So the material that comes from the log itself will kind of dictate where it needs to go in the basket or what the basket can be made and then used, used for. I know with birch bark, they do the double plate because birch bark, you can get it, it, it needs to touch. Like there can't be any holes in between Uh, where everything comes together, it has to be super, super tight and right next, like everything's got to be fitted right next to each other. Whereas ash, it can't do that. It is thicker than birch bark. And so it can only get so close. Um, You can try to not have any holes and you can, you can diagonal plate with, with ash as well, but you're going to have holes and that's just what it is with the material. And that's totally fine. So mine is just a, a plain weave over one, under one, over one, under one. And it's kind of like just weaving the base in that way and having the material be as tightly close together as possible. You're going to have a little bit of holes in the bottom. And then um, once you get the base in, then you have your additional lengths on all four sides of your basket, which then become your uprights. Um, If you think about uh, warp and weft, uh, the uprights would be the warp of your basket, and then the weavers would be the weft. That weave in and out, in and out, in and out, going all the way around the basket, all the way up to the top, kind of keeping all of those upright elements together, and um, followed by um, the rim system at the very top, which then is thicker material. Sometimes it's even a riven ash rim. Uh, it's not splint. It's actually you know made out of riven wood um, to be super strong. And then that's all lashed together with yet thinner black ash splint.
2: And r- riven is just a, another term for splitting.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just, where, that's where we just, because so, sometimes when we're out there, we have the the section of the log that we intend to pound. And then we have mm-hmm. the section of the log, maybe at the top where we can get parts out. So, you know, you just take the fro and, and mallet and you just kind of have it and quarter it and try to get some pieces out where you can shape down with a draw knife or whatever to make your handles and skids and rims, outer rims and things like that.
2: And then for listeners who might not know what a fro is, Amy, <laughs> would you mind telling us? <laughs> oh, it's
1: actually a much more complicated tool than it's given credit. Uh, oh, <laughs> no, it, it is. It's complicated. It's not just wedge shaped. It has to be kind of like a, it's not a teardrop, but it's it's got some interesting geometry. But
2: you're talking you're talking about like the
1: the blade. Pile. So it looks like an if you were to just look at it as a random thing, it looks like it's shaped like an L. Okay, so it's a right. one big piece of iron on the bottom with the, that has an eye, and it has a wooden stick basically, that fits into that Think hole. Think of it
2: like a hockey stick that the handle got cut off.
1: Yeah, there you go. Really low. Or, like, really small. <laughs> so yeah. what it's doing is separating the fibers of the wood, um, and you can control a split based on pressure with the fro. So if you take um, a log or a piece of firewood standing up straight, um, the way that you would cut it with an axe – or split it with an axe and you have a fro sitting where you would put an axe normally you can line up the fro really carefully and then hit the fro with a mallet and for like chair makers or basket makers or something you can control the split that's happening with pressure that you're using on the fro like if you're you push it up it it will go one way and if you push it down it will go the other it's kind of complex maybe we take a picture of one or something and put it up on Instagram for people to see. It's kind of hard to to describe over
0: I liked how you described that.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. So I hope I did a good job. I'm sure we'll get some feedback. (laughs) It doesn't just split. There's a there's some geometry to the blade itself that allows you to kind of pivot and rock and control where the the separation is happening in the wood fibers that Itself, so I'll, I'll leave it there. <laughs>
2: nice. Well, in April, I was also going to ask you. You said you didn't do any sort of dye work or fancy work, though. Once again, going back to our conversation with Birch Bark Beth, she mentioned a certain, uh, some red baskets um, <laughs> that you've made in the past together. Maybe, perhaps, with a glass of wine or two. Oh yes.
0: <laughs> 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 well, that was kind of maybe by accident, though, because oh. we just kind of like spilled the wine a little bit on a basket, <laughs> and then we realized we couldn't get the wine out, so we just dyed the whole thing in wine.
2: <laughs> when you can't get the wine out, you got to get the basket in.
0: Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of what happened with that particular one, yeah.
1: <laughs> also, with the fancy baskets, is that something that's specific to Ojibwe basket? Weaving, or maybe can you talk a little bit about that? Is that, or is that just the the term for people who are making baskets that aren't utilitarian?
0: Um, it's kind of the term for non utilitarian baskets, yes. So, um, and fancy work has been around for, uh, you know, for a long time. Okay. Well, there's, there was, there were many tribes on the East Coast that were doing a lot of this work, um, Mm you both utilitarian and fancy, you know, and I'm always trying, I'm always interested in how those baskets made their way in towards the Great Lakes. Um, and that's mm. that's that's still like kind of um, my quest even today. Like mm. uh, when I look around me, I don't see a whole lot of uh, black ash basket makers. And mm. when I started making baskets, uh, you know, back in 1999, I was wondering like, where are they all? And what is the history of this anyway? And mm. then, so then I just kind of, Got books from the library and tried to figure out where were the makers? How did this originate? And how come my people in my own community weren't making these baskets? And Mm -hmm. um, who could I even talk to about them? So uh, that took many years to try to get somewhere with that, with that very same question. Mm-hmm. But I I was always curious about it because, you know, there's tribes in lower Wisconsin that had continued to make those baskets. And there were tribes over in Minnesota that were making baskets. And there were natives up in Canada making these baskets and over in Michigan. And I'm like, I'm in northern Wisconsin. Where are these basket makers? I don't understand. <laughs> over time, I and through interviewing elders, that's where those stories came from for me was. Mm-hmm. I started to hear stories about this one person who had a couple baskets in his own personal collection, and he was you know in his late seventies when I talked to him and they came from his grandmother and another person also in his seventies um, had a basket in his personal collection uh that was passed down to him from his grandfather and then somebody else, another elder who pounded for some aunties when he was like 15 or 16 years old, and Mm. said it was the hardest work he ever had to do in his life, and he never wanted to do it again. And so, (laughs) uh, you know, so just these stories started to kind of surface, I guess. And, um, and then just kind of uh, reading about the history of Um, Ashland Basketry in the United States and its origination on the eastern seaboard. And if you look at the migration journey of the Anishinaabeg people, our people did migrate from the eastern seaboard. So it, and we ended up here, uh, you know, at this place where food grows on water, which is Madeline Island. And then we kind of went off the island and onto the, to the inland um, land masses. And so it doesn't surprise me how this type of basketry would have made its way here and had emanated from this place to other pla- to other places as like Minnesota or lower Wisconsin, but how it was kept alive in those places. You know, it was another mm-hmm. story, which was, well, there was a lot of bigger cities down there. You had Chicago down there. You had, um, you know, Milwaukee was down there or Green Bay or, uh, you know, New York was Huge city, Boston, huge city on the eastern seaboard. And so you had a lot of these tourist places where the natives were making these baskets to sell to the tourists who had the money. And they mm-hmm. would spend a long time making all these baskets only to set up shop uh, and make what the tourists wanted. So maybe the fancier work kind of originated from that um, when people started to feel the need to get a wage, get some money. I'm not quite sure because our lifestyles were so much different at one point and then they, they changed with history and everything else. So, and up here we don't really have any big cities where there was a lot of tourists. And so Mm. I was just kind of interested, like there was Wisconsin Dells, you know, down South or, um, you know, like I said, Chicago. So maybe people, maybe the tribes were continuing to make baskets down there because they had a source of income from that. But up here, there really wasn't that because we're in northern Wisconsin and we don't really have a big city around us. That makes
2: sense to me. Well, it's just, I was just going to say it's interesting hearing all of these places you're talking about, but you're always talking about them like they're way down south. But I grew up in South Carolina, so all of them are like super far, frigid north. <laughs> I mean, just because you live so far north in Wisconsin, where you're just like, way down in Boston or way down in <laughs> Wisconsin dells or Green Bay, those sunny climates.
0: Yeah, and that's oh. only like five hours away, but still.
2: <laughs> um, oh, no, but uh, so so the impression I'm getting from this is that this is a type of basketry that is uh, some like a tradition of your tribe but it was something that sort of got like lost along the way.
0: That's what it seems like anyway for, for up here. Yeah. You know, that, that question of what is its connection here at bad river? And even is there one like for me, mm-hmm. that is the question. And you mm-hmm. can look at, I've looked at many different uh, basket making books in particular with um with um, Ashland basketry anyway. And depending upon who the author is and what their perspective is, they'll tell you that uh, this type of Ashland, ba- that Ashland basketry really didn't exist here until um, the coming of the Europeans and the light-skinned race. And then, mm. then it was introduced to the natives. But if you look at some of what was already happening here uh, pre-contact, you'll see that the natives had been making baskets well before contact. Um right. I think there was some and, – and I got some of that information, too, from looking at these books. So it really was just depending upon who the author was and what kind right. of story they wanted to spin about ash splint basketry in the United States. Either it, the natives were doing it or it was introduced and mm-hmm. – um, if you look at the Ojibwe word for black ash, it's papagimak. So, and it has to do with like I don't know what the direct literal translation is because there really isn't any direct literal translation from Ojibwe to English, but um, it means something like beating log or beating wood. And so, mm-hmm. if you look at that word, that's a descriptor for some some characteristic of that tree or of that mm-hmm. material. So, if that's the word for that, the natives obviously knew. What it could Mm -hmm. do. And Mm -hmm. um, my opinion is that, you know, the baskets were probably just crude pre iron, pre trade, pre steel. And, Mm -hmm. um, but after that, they just got way more refined. And that's, Mm. that's the only thing that I can see is the difference. Yeah.
2: Do you think it was, I'm sorry, you just have me fascinated with like the first person to discover that the rings would separate like that Mm. with the pounding. Do you think it was like some tree fell over? In the springtime, and like bonked against the ground real hard, and they were like, "Whoa, look at that! They're kind of separated." What if we kept bonking?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. I thought about that. I thought, what if some, what if an ash tree was just in the river, getting you know hung up on some some logs, and the the waves were just pushing it against these logs or against oh, these yeah. rocks, and then they just saw that the rings came apart. I mean, um, Indigenous people are. We're so and still are so very aware of the surroundings and their mm-hmm. intimate relationship with with uh, nature. And mm-hmm. I mean, people have been sustaining themselves for generations and generations and generations for, for thousands and thousands of years. And so, mm-hmm. you can't tell me that they didn't know what was happening or what a tree was like or what a tree could be used for, what this plant material did, or what that animal was for, mm-hmm. because they had such an intimate um, relationship with the landscape and it kept mm-hmm. them alive and. So they had to have known there's, there's, in my opinion, there's just no way around it.
3: I'm sitting here on what used to be a Windsor chair, having suffered an incident, which resulted in my ability to rescue it from the side of the road. There's empty holes where armrest stumps once were and holes holding the shattered stubs of what once was a backing for those unfamiliar. Windsor chairs are those with wooden seats and spindle backs. Something apparent with a dark sense of humor could put in a timeout corner facing the wall, so a kid turned around could hold the bars like they're in a prison cell. I've repurposed this backless piece, clearly not built to last, as a writing seat that forces me to keep my back straight when I sit up on the front edge, even though it's a pain in my soft ass. Windsors, in their fullness have often been associated with writing. Think of antiquated schoolroom chairs with planks attached to one arm you know you've seen, those tiny desks carrying their history and their used condition, however weathered or pristine. And in that way, I guess my current situation goes along with the times. The U.S. Constitution is said to have been written by men in Windsor's, But I'll refuse to comment on how that might have contributed to the stiffness in his language, because that's what they call a low blow for the sake of a bad joke and unkind to the chairs, which are actually quite comfortable when made well. Ask Curtis Buchanan. For over 30 years, he's made them at his shop in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Curtis uses mostly hand tools, some from previous owners, carrying a connection to the past that, like the craft of creating quality chairs, has been handed down. It's worth noting that Curtis also works in silence, without a podcast or album to whittle away the hours, allowing him to ensure his constructions are sound. Even his voice fits his methods, soft-spoken with an accent that makes quiet and quite nearly interchangeable, which I find quite nice, and which you'll hear next episode. I wish I could switch from this half-broken factory-made remnant of a Windsor I'm soon to get up from for one of his as easily as that wordplay. Maybe one day. But, to credit their overall form in a manner I imagine Mr. Buchanan can appreciate, even sitting on a broken excuse for one helped me write this tidbit for their glory.
1: You mentioned that in the beginning it was about the finished basket for you, but then later you realized that traditional teachings were showing themselves through every aspect of the work. Can you share um, a little bit of what those teachings are and why they're meaningful to you?
0: I think that um, when I think about black ash and making baskets, what has become obvious to me over over the years and with the experience is that it's all a process from beginning to end from harvest to finish basket but there's many steps in between and all of those steps are related to each other and it becomes about efficiency and about really respect with the material all of that way of looking at just this basket process kind of transferred to everyday life of course and then I started to look at everything as a process and not to try to like Overthink everything in life, but just notice that um, we, I can be efficient or inefficient. After a while of like just kind of sharing this knowledge with people, I would talk about the material being on the floor. People would work on baskets outside on the ground and then their material would fall on the grass and get dirty. And I personally, like, that's not my basket that. I'm working on that's their basket. And if they want their material dirty, that's fine. But I at least need to tell them that you're going to have to clean that up later. So why not just not work on that, you know, on the on the ground right there right now, or put a blanket down, you know, keep your material clean, because the last step of the basket is cleanup, you clean up your basket, that's the last step of the process. So you're going to make it harder for yourself, if you just allow your material to sit in the grass and get all stained and dirty but at the same time that lesson was for that person uh, whether they wanted their basket to be stained and dirty or not like maybe it was really no big deal at all but mm-hmm. i started to just look at everything as a process how the material came off the log how it was sorted and coiled mm-hmm. and how many splints went in a coil based on how many splints on average it might take to make a pack basket or something like that every step of the way became a process and then after a while when i was teaching these people and sharing this uh, what I noticed was that people would react differently to different parts of the process. I had this one class where this where this uh, mother came in with her daughter, and she was really um, really good at a lot of things. And so I don't know if she came in with this idea that she was also going to be good at making a basket. And so, but she became frustrated on like three separate occasions. And the first couple times she just threw the basket down on the floor and went out to have a cigarette and her daughter was just sitting there. Eventually her daughter picked up the basket and just started weaving. So it was just like, I was just, Mm -hmm. just watching these people interact with, with this process of Mm -hmm. weaving this basket. I realized that it was teaching them about humility or patience, or I was, I realized it was teaching them about respect and wisdom and love and just all of these different things. So as time went on, I would just watch in these classroom settings and see how everybody was interacting or what they were learning about themselves and what I was Mm -hmm. learning about them Mm -hmm. and what I was learning about myself, because I I don't know everything. There's more Mm -hmm. than one way to make a basket. So Mm -hmm. it it just like these, these, these teachings started to show themselves through these students working with these baskets. And I just thought this is an amazing process actually. And in Mm -hmm. And those teachings aren't just for basket making, they cross everything and go into every, into anything you can do, cooking, driving a car, processing rice, I mean, harvesting, Mm -hmm. I mean, woodworking, it doesn't really matter what it is, it transfers over. And it just became part of the amazing process of empowering oneself and um, learning about each other.
2: That's an incredible testament to you as an instructor, even though I obviously I haven't taken a workshop from you. Um, but I, I just love, I mean, having taught workshops myself, but only for, you know, a couple of years. I think that that's, I find that really inspiring to, I look forward to if I can ever have an in-person workshop again, to, um, you know, really kind of tune on those types of, you know, rather than just seeing like, you know, making sure everyone's like happy or having a good time, but looking a little bit deeper into it and really kind of looking for those transformation cues and how people are responding to the process.
1: Mm-hmm. I
2: think mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to seeing how that will inform not just my teaching style, but maybe even also my work. This is all very selfish. I'm processing, uh, processing. I'm processing what you're saying as I'm talking, and so it doesn't always translate well.
0: Well, you know, and and it is it is an empowering process. I mean, working with anything, working with your hands. I mean, is like mm-hmm. I think truly empowering, and mm-hmm. um, and the stories they just they just. People just tell me like what had happened as a result of this class or that class. And I would Mm. not ever know unless that person decided to share that with me. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, another woman um, came up to me and said, you know, my brother has um, I'm surprised my brother's here in this class with me because, you know, All his life, our dad kept telling him that he couldn't do anything and he wasn't good at anything. And so and you could sense his nervous energy. Mm -hmm. And so we spent the day together making baskets and he just was so empowered when he left because he did that thing. He completed that basket and he loved it. And it was his first basket he ever made. And it empowered him in such a way. Uh, and taught him that he can do things, and so then he decided to take a trip. Uh, he just got on got on a bike and biked out to the west coast and back again, and so Whoa. it's like, <laughs> you wow, know, just just things like that, and and it's just beautiful, really, the healing process. It
1: is, yeah. Oh, is that something? Is that something that you went through as well? Like, so you're talking about being an educator and sort of watching people's interactions with applying what they're learning in the class and what they're lo- learning from basket making to to their lives, like how that's sort of a, a process that's sweeping over their entire life. And so the, the final layer of that is like some sort of healing that's happening. Uh, and so is that something that has happened for you personally in your basket making journey?
0: Um yeah, I think so. It reminds me of um this conversation I had with this um native from Red Cliff which is the reservation just like maybe an hour um east northeast of Bad River. There was this birch bark basket maker and she also did quill work and dyed quill work and and she was also an educator and her baskets her bla- her birch bark baskets were some of the most beautifully folded muck-up shaped uh, decorated baskets that I'd ever seen from a from a worker before. And I asked her if she would, um, if she, if she taught classes and she said she didn't, but I, mm-hmm. and that floored me because I thought, but you have all this knowledge. I don't understand why you don't teach classes. And she said, I only teach in certain settings, which was for um, AODA programs, youth programs. Summer what, what's AOD? Adult children of alcoholics, um, mm-hmm. group homes, um, shelters, things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, just random places that were, where people needed healing. And so anyway, she said, I only teach for these, I I don't teach in the general public, I only teach for, for like healing center kind of places. And I was just like, oh, and I was really bummed out because I really wanted to just sit with Diane and just learn from her, what she knew about um, birch bark. But that Mm -hmm. was years before I understood the healing process of just handwork. Um, in general, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the the healing that really took place for me was when I wove a, a a burial basket or or you know it's like a coffin, right? And it was an artist statement originally for um for this grant that I had received, and it was about the relationship with black ash, the future, and the emerald ash borer, the invasive species that's coming through, kind of wiping out a a great many um, ash trees across the United States, and. So the idea was to build this this um, coffin that I was calling the burial basket project, um, and I was going to actually fill it with like a thousand origami bright green beetles, and you know, and put them in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that when you open the lid, there was all these little emerald ash borer bugs in there. But I oh. uh, that was a lot. That was just too much for my hands, so I couldn't do that. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, And so but I was making this this coffin as an artist's statement about the future of ash and my work, which was what Mm -hmm. is the future of ash and Mm -hmm. basket makers in the United States? Because, you know, it's wreaking the emerald ash is wreaking havoc and uh, trees Mm -hmm. are dying. And um, what's going to happen with the resource um, moving forward in the future? And then but Mm -hmm. what ended up happening was that as I was building that, basket. It was also at a point in my life where I was just kind of going through a lot of grief and mm-hmm. and sadness. I realized that, you know, that that coffin that I was building was kind of representative of myself. And so it was mm-hmm. kind of like, with, with death, there is rebirth. And so well, just let me finish this coffin and see what happens. And then I could only get so far on it. And it was just too much. So I had to put it away. And I put it away for a year. And when I brought it back out after a year, I was able to finish it and then send it on its way. Finishing that huge project and sending it where it needed to go, it was the whole part of it without getting into a bunch of nitty gritty was about healing, healing myself through that through that grief and, and through that mm-hmm. um, period in my life where I had absolutely no control over anything.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it was a big deal. And I didn't realize that the energy that that coffin would take on, which was my energy or that just knowing that that coffin was sitting there in the back room for a year, waiting for me to do something with it. When you look at our culture, the Ojibwe culture, we, when somebody passes on um, you know, we have the ceremony for them and then we kind of kind of grieve for about a year. And then we, we move on. We have a celebration a year after that person has passed and And then we move on from that. So when that Mm -hmm. coffin was sitting in my back room, I didn't realize when I was even going to pull it out. But it was almost a year later, I pulled it out and finished it and sent it on its way. And so it was kind of felt like it was had come full circle for myself in that healing process for myself. And so when Mm -hmm. I was able to deliver it where it needed to go, I felt a lot lighter I felt like Mm. I was finishing something and it was helping to heal me at the same time. I was moving Mm. on. Wow. I guess if I have to say anything about the healing process with basketry, that would be the most, the biggest one.
2: That's incredible, especially just how it even synced up with like the normal timeline of like your practice for when someone passes on. Yeah, I think is, that's really like it was almost like your body was like no you need to do the whole year before you can finish this thing. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what it felt like. Wow. Yeah, wow.
1: April, is there is there anything that people not involved in basket making like ask you a lot? Do you wish that there was something everyone knew about it? I, this is a kind of a more general question, but I just thought it'd be interesting.
0: Well, as far as ash splint basketry goes, I mean, it's, it's a lot of hard work, you know, it's mm-hmm. labor intensive, especially pounding the log. It could take a couple of days to get all the, all the splints from it. And, um, mm-hmm. and then you got to coil it up and then I let them dry. And then, and then the material, when you're ready to make a basket comes back out and then you, and then you actually finish processing it, which means mm-hmm. splitting it down its center and making it thinner or, um, scraping it and, and just knowing that the basket is, is teaching you something. Uh, Mm -hmm. And the basket has input that it gives you as well. Um, You know, you could try to make this really cool thing, but realize that it's, it's, it's not going to happen, or you could weave up a really tall basket and realize that it's too tall and it needs to come down some. And it's not that, like a human can have whatever kind of perspective that, that they want to have on that basket or about that basket or about what they want that basket to do for them. But sometimes that basket is telling them, uh, uh-uh, I don't want to be this tall. You need to bring me down or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the basket kind of can give you those messages and the basket is, is telling you like the material itself is telling you where it needs to go inside that basket or when you're making it. Like your weavers are typically a little bit, thinner maybe than the uprights or maybe the same, but never thicker than the uprights. Like, you know, just things like Mm -hmm. that. Um, Mm -hmm. The material is, is kind of dictating where it needs to go. So, Mm -hmm. you know, so I guess what I'd have to say is it's a lot of work. I, I I appreciate it when people are super gung ho about it and they're like, we're going to pound a log and we're going to get all this material and make baskets. And when they actually follow through with that, I love it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, you talk about listening to the material and that's one of those kind of interesting catch-22s because it's sort of like when you're just learning something and everything's new, you don't necessarily know how to listen to the material because everything, like it's you're hearing its voice for the first time. And mm. so you don't necessarily know how to read like, oh, this is a struggle, not because I don't know the technique, but because the material itself doesn't want to bend this way or whatever, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so I was wondering. Uh, I remember reading, I think, on your Wikipedia page that you were <laughs> self-taught. How has being self-taught influenced your methods and teaching style?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that um, in the very beginning, I actually I didn't really care anything about baskets at all until that until that one basket that I had been filling and unfilling. Almost every day uh, until the lashing around the rim broke. That was mm-hmm. when it kind of just woke me up. And now, and I did never understand why that one part of the basket, when when it did that, when it broke, just woke me up. I'll never, I'll never know if I can mm-hmm. quite understand why that happened, but it did. Um, <laughs> as a result of that, I'd have to say that um, you know, when I was married, my husband had showed me how to make, how to weave my first basket, and when I did, I was, I was just ecstatic. And I couldn't stop looking at this basket. And it was at that point on that I'd like to say that I am I am self-taught because I had nobody to show me anything. So I just had to keep weaving one basket after another, after another, after another. And I didn't have any I I didn't know that the material was trying to teach me something. I was working with material that was way too thick. I didn't know anything about splitting down or scraping. I'm just like, Mm -hmm. this sucks. Like, how how am I supposed (laughs) to finish this basket? It's not coming together. So um, just the fact that I just kind of kept going because I was just kind of driven to make those baskets. And again, I can't even tell you why, but going through the whole year of just gaining experience by doing, that was key. And like... Mm -hmm. Finally, after a year, I was getting it, you know, I was just like, Oh, yeah, this material is too thick, and I need to be more selective. And um, so that was kind of, that was kind of an interesting process. Um, the other thing I, I wanted to say about self-taught is that um i was able to make up ideas and translate them into my language without actually knowing if it was a uh, an actual idea with with basketry or not so that's been kind of interesting because i just like make up words and mm-hmm. uh, and then they kind of come through in the teaching and i just say yeah it's kind of like a uh, uh, or whatever like and i' like I'm, I'll when i'm explaining it hands-on in front of the person like i'll just like maybe make a sound and the sound really is irrelevant it has nothing to do with nothing it's just the action of what they're seeing my hands do at that time so yeah. it's just kind of interesting. It's sound I'm like effects. i don't know maybe there is an actual term there but i don't know what it is so i'm just going to call it mm-hmm. this you know
2: <laughs> yes <laughs> for somebody who's looking to get involved in this uh it from what i saw it seemed like there were a lot of different resources that you look through, like for book learning and stuff. And I was just curious if there were other resources available to people now interested in this type of basketry. I
0: I would have to say probably more so now than ever before. Um, And granted, uh, the first video that I remember getting from the library back in um, 1998, or no, 1999, was I I want to say his name was Newt Washburn, but I don't know if that's actually correct. But I think he was a maker out in the East Coast. And um, and I think he was a utilitarian basket maker. And I think that was the very first video that I had rented from the Vaughn Library here in Ashland um, and mm. watched. And then from there, it was just getting books on splint work, not necessarily ash splint work, but just getting books on splint basketry and looking at the pictures and trying to make what I saw and try to figure out how they put it together nowadays you have a, I think a lot more resources specific to ash I'm not quite sure about processing it I'm sure there are some 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 books and resources out there where they actually show the splitting down process and things like that but I actually haven't done like a like a big search on that um, I know that I pick up books wherever I go. And even if I'm not working with that particular material, maybe it's caning, maybe it's it's read, but at least I'm looking at the shapes, the styles, the sizes, the proportions and ratios and their layout and transferring some of that knowledge to ash splint, which is splint work is splint work. It's essentially flat work. The basic information can transfer over to different materials sometimes pretty easily. So I think that there's a lot of resources out there for people to to check out.
2: Cool. And are, th- are mm-hmm. there uh, places that offer workshops consistently that you know of off the top of your head?
0: Well, North House Folk School in Grand Marie, Minnesota offers workshops. And I know that there's makers out on the East Coast. I know there's makers in Michigan and, um, you know, there's basket guilds. Um, and I think if people just looked in their local areas or uh, regional areas, they would be able to search and find something. I mean, ash basketry isn't big on the West Coast because the trees don't grow out there. But I think, for the most part, where the areas are that the 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 tree does grow, you know, there's there's quite a few makers that can be found. I, whether or not these makers teach classes, also, I don't quite know. But um, I I know that there are several that do.
2: Okay, cool. Yeah,
0: I actually
1: I was looking for a basket making guild uh around here because. I'm out in the middle of nowhere and I don't know that there's too many basket makers that are actually making baskets with like self-harvested materials and I mm-hmm. I did find one guild about I don't know an hour away or something and they're not they're just buying their materials from like mm-hmm. the basket makers catalog or something like that and that was kind of sad.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so the we there is a guild like the Oneida Basket Guild in Lower Wisconsin, but I don't think they harvest their material. And I mm. I apologize in advance if I'm misspeaking, but I think that when mm. I saw the material it looked like it was maybe purchased.
1: I mean I guess there's not there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but I'm I'm more interested in that sort of relationship with my surroundings. So maybe maybe I should just get into it. <laughs> Stop looking for other things. Have to start doing stuff. Okay. So outside of basket making, what else are you interested in and why? And that could be anything.
0: Hmm. That's a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mat making. Cause that's something that I don't see a lot of people doing up here is mat, mat making, which is something that our people did all the time. Uh, net making. So these are all still incorporating uh-huh. elements of weaving just different
2: items Mm -hmm. what's the difference between a mat and a rug
0: well they're kind of the same thing (laughs) (laughs) i mean in in the sense the in the older sense uh the mats you could have laid on the floor and sat on or you could have um hung them up as dividers um in the lodge or dividing a space uh Mm -hmm. so they could be like Mm -hmm. they could be like almost like a wall or it could be a covering Mm -hmm. for for a shelter you know um so depending Mm -hmm. upon where you put it i guess um, mm-hmm. if you're sitting on it, I think you could still call it a mat or a rug. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And no, I didn't know if it was like a, you know, not all rectangles are squares, but all squares are rectangles sort of thing. I think I got that right. Uh, I don't <laughs> the, remember if one of them was like, feeling. I didn't know if, yeah, if like one of them was a bigger, <laughs> like a broader category, like if yeah. all rugs mm-hmm. were considered mats, but not all mats were considered rugs kind of thing or yeah. vice versa.
0: Yeah, well, um, I have no idea. Dang it. <laughs> okay. in, in line with your question, though, Amy, one thing that I really have always wanted to uh, work more with is uh, cedar bark. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, cedar, uh, yeah, that weaving with cedar. Uh, I'd love to make mm-hmm. my own fedora someday, and I will. And. Um, and i want to uh head out to the west coast and hang out with some people out there who are working with it cuz that's where the material would be mostly woven with is yeah yeah pacific northwest yeah oh man
1: yes i've i've i spent like a year out there um taking uh like an ancestral skills course and my teacher taught us some uh cedar basket making and it was really fun okay mm. <laughs> we, we had a
0: great time it was really good we just made little berry baskets but oh and i think i think willow willow would be another nice willow bark to weave with mm-hmm. i've seen mm-hmm. some interesting baskets mm-hmm. like that willow bark not the withy you can peel the bark off of
1: a willow and weave with that it doesn't curl in really bad
0: the inner bark i think it is oh, i just remember oh, okay. seeing some pictures of like some willow bark baskets oh interesting. how interesting they looked Huh, But not like wicker work or anything like yeah. that. It's a little bit different.
1: Okay. Huh. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to go probably down like some sort of YouTube rabbit hole later today. Yeah. Willow, willow bark
2: baskets. <laughs> Bye, Amy. Talk to you in a few days. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. So I guess if I were to do any other work, uh, that's that would be what I would have an interest in is the cedar mm-hmm. and the willow and the mm-hmm. net making and mat making. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, it kind of exposes us to things that, like I have my my little crafts that I'm interested in outside of you know books and mm-hmm. the tool making that I do. Mm-hmm. But then those don't always overlap with everybody else's like outer circle of crafts they're interested in. So it's kind of mm-hmm. cool. Like for mm-hmm. instance, when Tim Manny was telling us, like, oh yeah, this gate specialist who helps you like with your oh, posture, and that was yeah,
0: like-
1: yeah, how <laughs> yes, I've heard about yes. them. <laughs> And it's, it's nice to hear when craftspeople say that because then it's like, oh, you know, someone will scribble that down while they're listening to the podcast and then maybe get into something else they didn't even know they were interested in. <laughs> so that's, yeah. hey, that's
2: part of the reason. Or to or just see that some people like have interest outside of like sometimes I need to take a break from books and I just want to yeah. knit or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: So yeah. that is, and that's a good question, Amy. So I, I thought of a couple more things that I would like to, to say. I would like to learn more about how to use technology. That's one thing. And oh. the other thing would be to learn how to fly an airplane. I think that's been oh. a goal of mine for a really long time, which I just remembered when you said anything outside the craft. And I think flying is probably outside the craft.
1: Yeah. Ooh. Wow. That's really cool. Wow, flying. Is there someone inside your craft that you admire? Um, And it's not a hierarchy or anything, maybe just someone who you think has been
0: influential, and then maybe outside of your craft? One fellow who uh, I haven't met yet, but Jonathan Klein, I would have been really inspired by his work um, and I, his work is also it's embellished with, you know, color. And I love the proportions. I love the the shapes and the sizes. And so I've, I've I really enjoy um, watching Jonathan Klein's um, seeing his work. Um, And Mm. so I guess that would be one person. And then uh, several years back, I met um, Joanne Kelly-Katzos. I didn't quite know who she was until she was in my class. And then when I saw the work that she could do, I'm like, why are you in my class? Like, (laughs) I I should be in your class. (laughs) But it was really interesting because like she makes smaller versions of baskets and she works on forms and her material is super meticulous. And mine is like, all mostly freeform woven and bigger and not on Mm -hmm. forms and maybe not as meticulous. Um, And so, um, you know, it was just really interesting sitting and chatting with her and I really enjoy um, seeing, seeing those two out in social media. And, and also uh, I think uh, Gabriel frame he's out in Maine. Oh yeah. He's he's one of the makers that I really enjoy watching um, what he comes up with and um, seeing some of his works but but you know there's a lot there's there's so many more people that are weaving that I really enjoy watching what they're making and and mm-hmm. and what they come up with and because it is a process and it's nice to see it uh come to the end where there's a handle put on or someone's actually using it and has developed a lot mm-hmm. of color and Um, Mm -hmm. maybe Eve is even broken in one or two spots, but they're still using it. So there's a lot of people out there doing good work with, um, Ashland basketry.
2: I have one quick side question that relates way, way back to something we were talking about when you were talking to us about the process, um, and how you're harvesting just at, you know, kind of that late springtime. So does that mean you're getting all of your material at that one time of the year? And then if so, how many trees do you need typically for your year's work.
0: No, I harvest actually whenever I need a tree, I'll go out and I'll harvest. So it could be wintertime and I'll go out and I'll harvest. I prefer not to do it during that time of year because you're on snowshoes and you got a big sled. And <laughs> But also during that time of year, there's no mosquitoes. And um,
2: Oh, so it was just spring growth you were talking about in regards to like the pounding process and stuff like that.
0: Right. But during that time of the year, also though, late spring, early summer, summer, like that is for me the best time to go out. Um, And uh, typically I will try to go out during that time and we'll get several, several, um, we'll cut down several trees if we can and get as many sections um, from the log as we can. And then uh, we'll just start processing, but um, sometimes that's a lot of processing to do. So uh, the log, and the log can't sit out in the weather. I can't sit out in the sun, it can't sit out in my yard. So I have to like tie it up to the river and make sure that it's soaking um, and staying hydrated until I get around to it. So I try not to do too many, you know, harvest too much at once because it's mm-hmm. it's a labor of love and and it's mm-hmm. and it's a lot of work. So I try to yeah. span it out throughout the year. And I think we probably harvest maybe only five logs, maybe six throughout the course of a year.
2: And that's ma- providing material for all of your workshops and stuff as well? Yep. Mm-hmm. Wow. Cool. Okay. Sweet. And that's,
0: that's what I like about it is that one tree, you can get several sections hopefully and Mm -hmm. each section will produce so much material. Um, it's Mm -hmm. amazing. It's really a lot of, a lot of material. Cool. So does
1: that, can you use the entire tree? Like the closer you get to the pith or is there like a certain, is there like a sweet spot of, you know, usable material on a tree?
0: I think the outer, uh, you know, the the sapwood is pretty nice uh-huh. because that's the outermost and it's light, milky white in color, and it um, doesn't have a lot of knots in it or knobs or pinholes or mm-hmm. anything. But, mm-hmm. the yeah, the closer you get down into the middle, into the heartwood, I, I, I prefer the heartwood color versus mm-hmm. the sapwood color personally. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I'll get down as far as I can until the pounding process gets broken up by too many knobs sticking out, too many lumps and bumps Mm -hmm. in that log. And all of a sudden you're Mm -hmm. trying to pound around the lumps and bumps. And then when you go to peel the splint from the log, it gets um, torn in that area, right? So your pieces Mm -hmm. aren't blemish free from end to end. All of a sudden you got a tear here and a crack there and a big old pinhole there and something else sticking Mm -hmm. out there. So it becomes more imperfect, which is still usable to some extent, but at some point it becomes firewood and you just can't pound Mm -hmm. it anymore.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you ever found like a nail or uncovered like a nail that just got absorbed by the tree or something like that? I have never. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on to the next
0: question.
1: (laughs) If someone wants to see more of your work, where can they find you, April?
0: Well, I guess the only social thing I have going on is Instagram. So, april.l.stone.
2: Duly noted. Um. (laughs) Anyway, well, April, thank you so much for giving us uh, your morning to uh, talk about what you do and where you're coming from. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: Oh, you're most welcome. Thanks for having me. It was an honor.
1: Well, we're honored.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right. And next up, we have an interview with chairmaker Curtis Buchanan. So, to get a glimpse into the supportive world of chair-making, here's a clip from that interview. Thanks for that one, Humble. That was a good one. Supportive. Yeah. All right. Anyway, back to the clip. I, I made some, I don't know, some economist, I, I don't know, in Australia. I don't know how he got on me. I have no idea. <laughs>
0: but he was using me as, a, as, as this, of
2: what not to do.
0: <laughs> uh,
2: Okay, humble.
1: (laughs) Usually lead me into things a little bit better. That's okay. No, I like
2: it, but just nice and confusing. (laughs) No,
1: you're right. Okay. All right. Uh, Please feel free to hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review us because it helps with the show's visibility.
2: Yes. Thanks so much to everyone who has already taken the time to rate the show or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's really important to help people find the show. So thank you.
1: Also, thanks to everyone who has contributed to our Patreon account. Every dollar helps us bring you meaningful and entertaining interviews and enables us to build a community that supports folks trying to get into handcraft.
2: And uh, thank you for your patience to everyone who has pre-ordered a t-shirt. We are placing the order at the end of the month, as in this month is in August. Uh, So if you'd like to get in on that pre-order, the clock is ticking. Who knows when we're going to do it again.
1: (laughs) Or we'll ever have the chance to do it again. (laughs) You can follow us on Instagram at cutthecraftpodcast to see images of our guests' work and stay up to date on happenings and releases. You can find us both on Instagram at amy__umble and at Bidler. If you have any questions, interview requests, or other crafts you would like to see represented, please email us at cutthecraftpodcast at gmail.com.
2: And as always, we're forever grateful to those who help make this podcast possible. Thanks Brad Vedder for your graphic design, our friends the High Divers for letting us use your sweet tunes, our resident poet Justin Williams for your commercial wizardry, and to Luke Mitchell of the High Divers for your help and advice with the technical side of things. We hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Thanks.
1: See you next time.